Hello, and welcome to Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. My name is Kristen Gutu, and today's guest is Leah Rothstein, co-author of Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law, with her father, Richard Rothstein, also the author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Leah has experience working as a community and labor organizer in the San Francisco Bay Area and throughout California, focusing on housing, police accountability, education, environmental justice, and worker health and safety issues. She earned her master's degree in public policy and became even more interested in how housing and community development policy impacts the way we relate to our communities and to each other. She worked as a financial and policy consultant to affordable housing developers, cities, counties, and redevelopment agencies, and has directed research for two Bay Area counties on their community corrections policies, practices, and populations to help promote a rehabilitative approach. So with that intro, I am very excited to have you here today. Is there anything you would like to add to your intro or how you've gotten to the point where you decided to write this book? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. It's great to be here. You pretty much covered my background. I'll just add, I guess, that you know, my dad wrote The Color of Law in 2017. It was a surprisingly popular book that sort of changed the narrative of how we talk about racial segregation in this country from, you know, accepting the idea that we are segregated as a de facto form of segregation where, you know, it's not caused by law or policy, but by personal preference or private action. So The Color of Law debunked that myth and helped people see the true history of how we came to be segregated, which is that it was explicit government policy that created racially segregated communities. Now, then a lot of people read that book and asked my dad, well, you know, I appreciate that we now understand this history, but what do we do? I was one of those people who asked him that question. And so he responded to me by asking me to help him answer it. And that's how we came to write Just Action to help help answer the question of what do we do about it now? I particularly enjoyed reading it because my master's capstone for my data science program focused on my hypothesis that the reason we see trends where Black communities, Latinx or Indigenous communities in America constantly see higher poverty rates, lower family income, higher incarceration rates, higher suspension and expulsion rates, and lower math and reading scores. And my approach to this thesis was to say that these results are a consequence of these systemic issues and how the institutions we provide to these groups and also the systems that are perpetuated generationally. So in that vein, you mentioned that, quote, economic and social conditions in segregated Black neighborhoods place obstacles to student performance end quote, and that, quote, many Black children suffer nutritional deficits that impede learning, end quote. So can you give an example or elaborate on how these socioeconomic issues play a feedback loop in how things escalate? 
Yeah, well, you know, the government policies that created segregated communities, they didn't just segregate people by race, they also segregated resources. So when redlining, for example, was a policy of the federal government and and mortgage, you know, issuers that said that they could only give mortgages in areas where African-Americans didn't live. So then in the areas that were redlined, where African-Americans were forced to live because they couldn't get loans to live in other neighborhoods, those redlined areas were then deprived of resources. Banks didn't place branches there. Grocery stores don't locate there. They're closer to, you know, industry that spews pollutants in the environment. Their homes are more overcrowded because there's more of them forced to live in a smaller neighborhood. The homes are, you know, not well maintained. They are more likely have lead paint. So children in those neighborhoods, they suffer the consequences of all of those resource deprivations. So they have higher rates of asthma, more lead poisoning, uh, more stress, you know, living in overcrowded conditions, lack of sort of public services, more police presence, because it's sort of inevitable when you concentrate people with not a lot of opportunity or access to jobs, there's going to be more police presence to try to sort of control them. So when you think of sort of how that then affects a child's ability to learn, they go to a school that even if that school has all the resources it needs, which isn't the case because those schools are also deprived of resources, but say, imagine that the school has all the resources it needs, it still serves a student body where every student has one or more of these challenges. They have been up all night wheezing because they have asthma or they suffer from lead poisoning or they haven't had a healthy meal. You know, they're less able to learn. So the, the, the classroom, the whole classroom suffers no matter how well trained or no matter how high quality the teacher is, that teacher can't sort of meet the needs of all of these students that are coming to school with a variety of challenges. And so the overall learning suffers. So that's how we get from segregated neighborhoods to educational disparities. And that's that's a real connection, you know. So then we have schools that are filled with students facing all of these challenges. The learning of everyone suffers. So those students, they... They have lower educational achievement throughout their lives. As a result, they have lower incomes. They also then grow up to have more health challenges. So children who grow up in segregated African-American communities, they grow up to have higher cancer rates than children who grow up in white communities, higher rates of cardiovascular disease, and shorter life expectancies. They live uh, shorter lives because of the neighborhoods that they grew up in. So these are consequences that are real. They have real impacts on our lives. And it all comes down to these same policies that determined where we live and ensured that whites and African-Americans lived apart from each other. And then that those neighborhoods where they were, the different races were living were very differently resourced. And you made a few points that I wanted to touch on because again, I want to bring it back to tech. And in tech, there's a more famous predatory algorithm called Compass, which was used in the prison system, and it inaccurately predicted Black people to be high-risk reoffenders and white people to be low-risk reoffenders. And often when this algorithm assesses the data, 
it only looks at arrest rates and does not remove data on unwarranted arrests. So it does not matter if there was conviction or reason for the arrest. And I know you mentioned this also in relation to housing. And this is something that I suppose didn't come to a surprise, uh, wasn't a surprise, but I didn't know that there were such aggressive policies against giving rent to people with conviction. So can you talk on that and elaborate a little more how extreme that is? Yeah, well, I'll just comment first on the Compass system because I'm familiar with that with my work in criminal justice reform. It's an example and, you know, the credit scoring system in the housing world is another example of this, of a tech-based sort of algorithmic system that repeats a cycle. You know, so with the Compass risk assessment, it bases an assessment of your future risk based on your past criminal involvement. Now, if you live in a neighborhood where you're more likely to get arrested for standing on the street corner than a neighborhood where you won't get arrested, even if you shoplift, for example. So if you're more prone to being arrested because of the neighborhood you live in, the race you are, the sort of method and style of policing in your neighborhood, then you're going to have more on your record. You're going to be assessed as a higher risk for future um, crimes, and you'll be more likely to be sentenced more strictly because of your past criminal involvement. So it's a cyclical sort of bias that repeats itself. Now, this also happens in the credit scoring system, which we write about in Just Action, where another algorithm that is based on your financial history that's supposed to give an objective rating of your future likelihood of repaying a debt. So your financial history will determine if you're eligible for a mortgage. But it's only a certain type of financial history that goes into the credit scoring system. It's a type of financial history that is whites are more likely to have than African-Americans. Credit scoring system doesn't count rental payments. It only counts mortgage payments. Um, It doesn't count non-traditional financial institutions like payday lenders. So all of the sort of financial instruments and structures that are more likely found in African-American neighborhoods don't feed into a credit scoring system. So African-Americans are less likely to have a credit score at all. And when they do, they have lower credit scores than whites, not because they're less credit worthy, just because they don't have the type of financial history. So then they're less likely to be able to get a mortgage to build up that credit history or get a credit card. So it's that same cyclical bias. And I know I I'm I went out on a tangent. So I'll go back to the, the issue about being able to rent when you're somebody who has a history of arrest or conviction. So this is common in a lot of localities, a lot of landlords, you know, refuse to rent to anybody who has a criminal record. They use the sort of reason of creating safety for their other tenants. They don't want to have somebody who's likely to, you know, commit future crimes in their in their buildings. That makes sense to some extent. You know, landlords do have a responsibility to create a safe living environment for their tenants. But because of the bias that exists in the criminal justice system, it is it impacts African Americans more than whites and makes them less able to rent an apartment. If you don't have stable housing, it's a lot harder to stay out of the criminal justice system. You know, some communities criminalize sleeping on the street, for example. So you could get arrested for not being able to find a home, and you can't find a home because you've been arrested. So again, the cyclical bias of the system 
And, you know, we write about in Just Action that a lot of communities have gone even further than allowing landlords to not accept tenants who have a criminal record. And they, what they've done is adopted what's called crime-free housing ordinances, which is an ordinance that allows or requires landlords to work with local law enforcement agencies to check on every tenant to see if they've had any criminal involvement in the past. Now, a lot of these ordinances don't define very clearly what criminal involvement is. So it could be an arrest that didn't result in a charge or a conviction. It could be associated with somebody who's been arrested. So, you know, we live in a country where you're you're innocent until proven guilty. So if you've been arrested and not even charged with a crime and then considered a criminal, and then a landlord is supposed to take this information into account and deny tenancy to anybody who's had any involvement with law enforcement. And if they don't, under these crime-free ordinances, landlords can be fined or jailed for not complying with this ordinance. We give an example. I believe we wrote about this in Just Action, but there's a community in, I think it was Minnesota that had a crime-free housing ordinance that was clearly, there was racial bias behind passing it. Oh, I wrote about it in our Substack column. We have a free uh, semi-regular newsletter in Substack called Just Action. And I wrote about crime-free housing ordinances and a lawsuit that was won to block these ordinances. And one of the examples given in the complaint, this was in California, was a woman who had called the police uh, with a domestic violence complaint a couple times because her partner was threatening her. And that counted as criminal criminal involvement on her part. So she was evicted from her unit and couldn't find housing in this community at all because of the crime-free housing ordinance. So this broad sort of prohibition against being able to access housing, if you have any contact with law enforcement, is just clearly a violation of fair housing laws of, you know, and it and it doesn't actually help a community be safer. It actually destabilizes households and communities. And something that I thought was, again, more alarming under this crime-free ordinance topic that you covered in Just Action was that the eviction of tenants who had any contact with law enforcement or were suspected of engaging in any criminal activity. So again, it's this element of suspense, which is founded in bias and limited perspective. And now we are codifying this in these algorithms. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the case of, I believe, Robert McDaniel in 2021, in Chicago, but he was on the short end of a predatory algorithm that said he was likely to be in a shooting. The police uh, approached him to tell him that they're watching him. And because they approached him and regularly checked in on him, people saw him interacting and they thought he was a snitch. And so Chicago gangs shot him not once, but twice because Mm -hmm. the police maintained this interaction. And again, it's this idea of where's I, I you mentioned the chicken and the egg in your book. So it's like, what comes first? Is it the bias or is it the reason? And mm-hmm. you show again and again that the data is constantly being ignored. And 
I wanted to bring it back to see how different organizations further perpetuated bias. So I was curious if you were, wanted to talk about either Kodak's role in racial segregation or the Baltimore Sun. I thought those were both interesting examples. Yeah, so we give several examples of communities around the country that created segregation through, you know, through government policy and also through developers and builders who created subdivisions and communities and ensured that they were only for whites. They put racially restrictive covenants on the deeds of the homes they built that said that the home could only ever be owned or occupied by whites. So we profile several communities where this happened. So Kodak was one company that helped to finance segregated communities in Rochester, New York. Um, there were several builders and developers, realtors who helped ensure that the subdivisions built in that area were restricted to only whites. Now those communities are segregated communities because of the past government policy that restricted access to the sort of better neighborhoods to, to include whites only. And so there's communities, you know, community groups in those areas that are working to try to remedy that. There's one we wrote about a credit union that used to be the Kodak credit union um, for Kodak employees. And now it's sort of a broader based credit union in that area. And they've started a down payment assistance grant program specifically for African-American homebuyers to help remedy the, the effects of the past policies that restricted African-Americans from home ownership when those homes were affordable in the past. These are examples from a section of the book. You know, we focus a lot on the government policy that created segregation, both explicitly and through incentivizing and requiring private actors like developers to create segregated communities. Now, that is, you know, the most important part of the story. We have an obligation to remedy those past government unconstitutional actions by the government that created segregated communities. We have an obligation to work through local policy and programs to remedy and reverse that segregation. Now, the government was the main driver of creating segregated communities, but private actors played a huge role as well. Kodak was one. Um, developers all over the country, you know, they were incentivized and required by government, but they were happy to do it. They wanted to create segregated communities. And we use the Baltimore Sun as another example of a private company, you know, a newspaper that perpetuated segregation by use, by allowing ads in their classified section for restricted homes. So we, we give an example of some of the classified ads that said, you know, this home for sale, whites only. And, and so all of these companies that had a role to play in creating segregated communities have a role to play in remedying them. So Just Action is written for local community residents as sort of a guide, a list of ideas of what they can do to remedy segregation in their own communities. And so we advocate that those groups should pressure local governments to change policy and also pressure their local institutions and corporations that had a role to play in creating segregation to play a role in remedying it. So that would include the Baltimore Sun, Kodak, all of these companies that had something to do with creating and maintaining segregated communities. And to take it further, you discuss the role, obviously, of banks and insurance companies. So can you also touch on 
the many levels of bias and discrimination that African Americans have to face when it comes to appraisals, assessments, listings, banks, insurance, taxes. Okay, so we know about redlining, right? That was practice policy in the mid 20th century where banks refused to give mortgages to any home buyers in communities that weren't all white. So we know about that practice. It's no longer legally allowed under the Fair Housing Act. You can no longer discriminate in the sale and rental of housing. But there's a lot of ways that bias still exists in the home buying and home owning system. So, you know, there's still what's called financial redlining, where banks don't locate branches in communities of color and they give fewer loans to applicants from those communities. And so community groups can use the Community Reinvestment Act, which is an act from 1977 that requires banks to invest in the lower and moderate income communities in their service area. So when banks don't do that well, they get a bad score in their Community Reinvestment Act assessment, and local groups can use those scores to help enforce banks um, living up to their obligation to fairly lend in their whole service area. Now, that's one piece of it. And then there's the, you know, so getting into home ownership is an important piece, helping African-Americans get into home ownership. Since they've been denied that from past government policy and practice, there's a lot of obstacles that still exist, even though it, you know, the Fair Housing Act is in force now and you can't legally discriminate. Um, there's still a lot of obstacles that are sort of racially neutral on their face, but have this racially disparate impact. So the credit scoring system is one I talked about where because of financial redlining and because of how the credit scoring system works, African-Americans have lower credit scores than whites. And so it's harder for them to get a mortgage. So we have to address that bias and that racially disparate impact of that process, the credit scoring process in order to help African-Americans access home ownership. Now, many in sort of the housing world tout home ownership and increasing African-American home ownership as a way to close the racial wealth gap between Blacks and whites. And it is an important way to close the wealth gap. We won't be able to close that gap without increasing home ownership for African-Americans. But we have to go a step further and look at all of the other ways that even when they get into home ownership, Blacks are less likely to build up the same wealth that whites are. And there are several reasons. One is the appraisal system. There is, um, has been shown to be bias in the appraisal system, where homes in African-American communities or owned by African-Americans appraise at lower values than similar homes in white communities, or even sometimes the same home with a Black person saying they were the owner and the appraiser comes, they get a lower than they expect appraised value. And then they have a white friend stand in for to be the homeowner and the home appraises at a higher value. Now, these are anecdotal stories. We don't really know how common it is, but it does seem based on the data that homes in African-American neighborhoods appraise lower than the offer prices of those homes. So lower than the market would actually pay for the home, which is what the appraised value is supposed to say, what the market value is. But because of bias in the appraisal system, African-American homeowners, homes are undervalued when they go to sell them or refinance them. So that limits their wealth building potential of home ownership. And that's something that needs to be addressed. 
Now, on the flip side, in the property tax assessment system, this is another time when a home's value is estimated. So the appraisal system, it's estimated in order to get a loan or to, to sell the home. In the property tax assessment system, the local government assesses what they think the home home's market value is so they can apply the tax rate to that assessed value and determine how much you owe in taxes. Now, all across the country, in all kinds of communities, homes in African-American communities are assessed at higher values relative to their actual market value than homes in white communities. So it's a little bit of a complicated story, but how it happens is the local government has to assess the market values of all of their homes in the jurisdiction in order to calculate property taxes owed. And many jurisdictions don't do reassessments very often. What we write about in Just Action, some cities and counties hadn't done reassessments in 50 or 60 years. So in that time, they figure out some set amount that all properties in the jurisdiction either increase or decrease in value every year. So they apply this factor to the last time they did a cross-the-board reassessment of all the homes in the jurisdiction. So there's some set factor that they're adjusted. Now, in that time that a real reassessment is not performed, homes in white neighborhoods increase in value faster than that set percentage that the assessor applies to all of the homes in the jurisdiction. And homes in African-American neighborhoods either stay the same or sometimes decrease in value while that set factor is increasing its assessed value. So as a result, homeowners in white neighborhoods have assessed values that are below their market price, and homeowners in Black neighborhoods have assessed values that are often higher than their market price. So the result is that African-American homeowners paying more than their fair share in property taxes. If you pay more in property taxes every month, you're less likely to be able to build wealth through homeownership because your bills are higher. And then again, I have all these facts. So I'm just throwing mm -hmm. your own quotes back <laughs> at you. But um, because it really is so layered that I really want to highlight that. And so to go off of that, I'm going to quote you. Uh, Many African-Americans who've never owned homes could qualify for mortgages, especially in the frequent cases where monthly charges, including tax and insurance, are not much different from rent payments. These potential homeowners can demonstrate good credit but don't have savings for a down payment. White home buyers are more than twice as likely as African-Americans to get down payments from equity retrieved when they sell a previous home. Uh, you continue to go on to say that when banks decide whether to make loans, they evaluate how likely borrowers are to repay. Higher scores give borrowers a better chance of getting new loan approvals and lower interest rates, lower scores make this almost impossible. Applicants are penalized if they use more of their available credit. Upper income households frequently offered higher credit limits than they need will have more unused credit eligibility as a result, and their scores will be higher than those of moderate income families whose debt is closer to their allowable limits, even if both groups pay their obligations on time, end quote. So here is just another example of even if you're doing everything right as an African-American, you now have less mortgage uh, loans that you can qualify for 
And then also you have less credit that you can use and it will affect your credit score regardless of your repayment. So it's, again, you said this cycle of everything is so interconnected with the housing and the credit score and different loans. And I wanted to bring it back to another predatory organization, this time Fannie Mae, if you could please elaborate on their role. I can talk about the appraisal system more, if that's okay, because yeah. I'm more trying to focus more on local issues. Fannie is beautiful, you know, national. I'll um, amend the question, but yes, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay, so yeah, the appraisal bias issue, you know, there's the anecdotal stories of people, you know, Black homeowners who get a low appraisal and then have a white friend stand in and get a higher appraisal. So that is true, but we don't know how often that happens because, you know, people don't actually commission a new appraisal very often to identify the bias that's happening. So we need to be able to see the data of all of the appraisals in the country. Fannie Mae holds that data. Federal Housing Finance Agency holds that data. They're starting to release some of it. It's not complete, but the only way we can understand where biases exist is to look at the appraised values that are done on every mortgage issuance, which, you know, there's appraisals done every time someone applies, you know, wants to buy a house or refinance a house and compare that to the offer prices that someone's willing to pay for that house and compare, look at what the comparables the appraisers are using to, you know, every appraisal, it looks at the house and the condition of the house, the number of bedrooms, and also comparable sales that, that the appraiser determines, in their opinion, are similar homes and what those homes sold for. And that's how they determine what that home that they're appraising, what that value is. Now, there's a lot of, you know, this is all subjective to the, to the appraiser, what comparable homes are. So homes in African-American communities, often the comparable homes are, or a home owned by an African-American comparable homes are homes in a, in a, sort of depressed African-American community where home prices are low, whereas maybe they should be using comparables from a wider range of communities. So this is where the data will help us be able to see where bias is occurring and how we can address it. So that's one issue, the data side and understanding the issue and how it can be addressed um, either through a technological fix or through you know, a systemic fix. Now, the way the appraisal profession works it's an apprenticeship system. So to become an appraiser, you have to go through a training and then apprentice with an existing appraiser. So it's something like 90 something percent of appraisers are white males. So when you, you know, obviously that's gonna replicate itself in their, who they apprentice. So the profession is very white, it's very male. And that in itself, probably produces bias when you're appraising a home in a neighborhood you don't know or don't understand or might think is less valuable because you don't live there, you know, there's some bias in, in who's performing the appraiser. So we need to diversify the appraisal industry. There's some efforts to do that and ensure that homeowners have the ability to request a second appraiser. And what we suggest in the book is that banks develop lists of sort of approved appraisers that they know have no bias, and they'd have to put in some extra effort by hiring appraisers to do additional appraisals and then compare them to the sale prices to see who's actually appraising correctly. And then I have developed a list of non-biased appraisers. And when a homeowner or a home buyer 
you know, thinks that their appraisal is incorrect or that there's bias in it, that they can request a second opinion from this list of approved appraisers. So we need sort of a more robust system. It's it's currently pretty opaque. Banks and appraisers have a lot of control over how a home is valued. And we need sort of more sunlight, more transparency, more inputs into the system. And again, to bring it back to tech, I think that's such an important note because similar statistics show that in America, almost 91% of AI experts are men and over Mm -hmm. 70% are white. So again, it's this very biased perspective. And again, it's a very opaque black box model that we don't know what's defining this output and how do we reverse engineer so something to keep in mind Mm -hmm. but I wanted to ask because you focus a lot on the importance of integration both ways with more white people moving into African-American neighborhoods and more African-Americans moving into white neighborhoods and so my question is how do we approach this tastefully so where is it gentrification versus integration and where's the fine line between the two yeah well just to sort of uh, rephrase how you summarized it we do advocate for integrating exclusive white neighborhoods allowing more diverse residents and then we advocate for increasing resources in segregated African-American neighborhoods to make that, you know, to remedy the consequences of segregation that leaves those neighborhoods under-resourced. And then we understand that when you increase resource investments in or income communities, gentrification usually results where white residents want to move in, they have higher incomes, they pay higher prices for the homes and higher rents for the units. And so prices increase and the longtime residents of those communities are displaced. So it's not that we say that whites should move into those neighborhoods, but that those neighborhoods should see increased investments. And it's sort of inevitable that what will follow is whites will move there. We also advocate for some policies as we increase investments in those neighborhoods, we pass policies that prevent some of the displacement that can occur in those gentrifying areas. So rent regulations to protect renters from rapidly increasing rents or just cause eviction ordinances to protect renters from unjust evictions, because often in gentrifying neighborhoods, landlords will either just jack up rents or find pretenses for an eviction to to kick out their lower paying tenants so they can bring in higher paying tenants. So we want to protect renters from those outcomes. Um, Inclusionary zoning is another policy adopted on the local level that can help with gentrification. It requires that when when new housing is built, a certain percentage of the units are reserved to be affordable for lower and moderate income households. So that ensures in a gentrifying neighborhood as new housing is built, some of that new housing is affordable to the longtime residents of that neighborhood. Another example is a land trust that can create permanently affordable home ownership opportunities in areas where housing prices are rising, and that can also prevent some of the displacement that can occur with gentrification. So both are important. Increasing investments, preventing displacement have to happen at the same time. That makes sense. Thank you for clarifying. I also wanted to ask because you discuss houses that were sold on contract versus on mortgage. So what's the difference between the two? Yeah. So when African-Americans were 
denied mortgage opportunities through like redlining. What took its place in redline communities was a process called contract selling or contract buying, where a landowner, usually an investor of some sort, owned a home and sold it on contract to the African-American quote unquote home buyers. They thought they were home buyers. The sellers framed it as if it was a type of mortgage, but it was really an exploitative contract term that basically said that the home owner, quote unquote owner, the contract buyer had to pay, you know, a monthly fee, what they sort of framed to be the mortgage payment. And if they ever, for the term of 30 years, right, that they were basically like paying a mortgage. But the contract terms also often said if they were ever late on a payment, that the whole contract was then void and they lost the entire home. They never got anything back from the payments they had made. Often also, you know, these were unregulated contracts. So a contract seller could have a term of 30 years, say the homeowner or the contract buyer paid their monthly fees every every month on time, never violated the terms of the contract. Right before the 30-year term, the contract seller would change the terms of the contract and basically make it impossible for them to ever own the home. So not only did it never result in home ownership like the contract buyers thought it would, but also when they lost the homes, which often happened because these were investors that wanted to collect the monthly payments. And then when it got too close to the residents owning the home or for whatever reason, they could sort of negate the contract and get a new home, you know, a new residence in there to pay more on a new contract. So they weren't in the business of actually trying to sell these homes. They were just trying to make as much money as they could. So usually when you have a mortgage and you default on your mortgage or you sell the home, you get back what you've put into it, you know, minus your interest payments, you get back your principal payments. But under a contract, when the contract was terminated, they didn't get anything back. They lost all of the money they put into that home, including all of the maintenance and improvements they put into the home. So this was hugely exploitative, used commonly in African-American communities in places like Chicago and Baltimore in the 50s and 60s. And what we write about in Just Action is that it's happening again in many communities where African-Americans have less access to mortgages due to the fallout of the subprime mortgage scandal. It's harder to get mortgages. It's harder to get mortgages for lower value homes. So, and then these investors who own huge swaths of single family homes in many communities now are selling them on contract, same exploitative terms. And what we need is local regulation of these that we need to determine are these rental units or for sale units. If they're rental units, the owners of the homes, the landowners need to be responsible for the maintenance and upkeep of the home, not the residents. You know, and then those those residents are protected like renters are protected. If it's a home ownership unit, then those residents need to have a mortgage where they have the right to get what the money they've put in, you know, when they sell the home or or want to get out of the contract. So it's an issue, you know, I didn't know about before reading the color of law. And I didn't know it was still an issue in communities today, but it is. And it's something, again, that it's hard to determine who's responsible because many of the owners of these contract sold units are LLCs with layers and layers of investors and hedge funds that own them. So it's hard to even determine who the owners are. So that's often where communities need to start is try to figure out who owns these homes 
so then we can regulate them and hold them accountable. And despite having so many more questions for you, I'm going to wrap it up. So one of my final questions is that at the end of the book, it's mentioned that we all have unconscious biases. Of course we do. I think a lot of people get very defensive when told that they are biased. And this continues the perpetuation of bias because we do not mitigate it at the root. So can you elaborate on what you mean by all of us have unconscious biases? Yeah, well, we need biases to sort of filter through all the information we get from the world, right? That's how we decide how to understand all of the inputs we're getting through our eyes, ears, you know. And so many of the biases we have exist because of what we see. And so there's a piece of, you know, we need to address our internal unconscious biases when it comes to race, gender. But most important is we need to adjust and change the situations, the the systems, the conditions that we're living in and experiencing. Because, you know, it's common to have this unconscious bias that people of color are more likely to be criminals or commit crimes than white people because we see more of that on TV. And this has a long history in this country of building up that bias. Now, there's one piece of it is addressing the bias we have internally and sort of challenging that. But the most effective way of addressing that bias is to get rid of the bias in the criminal justice system so that more African-Americans aren't arrested for crimes that white people also commit and aren't getting arrested for. So it's both addressing our internal biases, but also addressing the conditions we live in that create those biases is actually more important. I think that's such an important emphasis that what we see is often an illustration of what we believe versus what is reality. And that's the goal of this podcast to encourage people to look at the data and make informed decisions, informed biases. And so with that said, is there anything else that I might have missed that you want to highlight or mention to our listeners? Well, on that last point, I'll give one more example. We have a photograph in Just Action of a group of prisoners who are working, you know, they're, um, you know, sort of a chain gang. And it's from, I don't remember the year, a while ago, (laughs) mid early 20th century. Now these were, they're mostly African-American men. They were picked up under vagrancy laws where in the South, it was illegal to, you know, not have a job, but these men couldn't get jobs because Jim Crow laws. So they, there was bias in that system where they were arrested for quote unquote being vagrant. And then as a result of that arrest, were put on these chain gangs and sent out into public places to work in their prison uniforms. And then the white people who passed by would see them and think, oh, these black men are prisoners. They're criminals. They don't know the history of how they came to be arrested and be on that chain gang. But the bias that they develop from what they see is that African-Americans are more likely to be criminals. And so this is, you know, another example of addressing our own biases by understanding the underlying conditions and what, you know, led to what we're seeing, but also just changing what we're seeing will do a lot to change our bias. And I think that's true in, you know, what we see online, what we see when we search for certain things online and, and the bias that results in what we get back from those searches. So 
I think this is an important topic and it's going to become even more relevant as AI becomes more relevant in our lives. So I appreciate you having this podcast and having this conversation. And I so appreciate having guests such as yourself on this show. Thanks again for your time and insight, Leah. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in for another episode of Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. Tune in again for another episode where we discuss how psychology, language, and or history influence the way we codify bias in the technology we are building today. Thanks for listening and have a great day, everyone.